Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's The Wonky Show. We've got access and participation plans, UCAS end-of-cycle data, and a major government review of research bureaucracy. It's all coming up. Okay, we'd like to give you all of this money to do your research. What's it actually going to do in real terms? How's it actually going to affect regular people? How's it going to affect the field? And that is, to my mind, a reasonable question that you would ask if you're deciding uh, what kind of research that you've got to Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Mark Leach, recording from Nottingham, where I am to meet this year's graduating cohort of Ambitious Futures, the brilliant graduate training scheme for higher education. And today, we have three amazing guests to help us break through the policy frost on a cold January morning. In London, we have Rachel Hall, University's Editor of The Guardian. Rachel, your highlight of the week. I think it's a low light, and that would be planning how to grieve on Friday. And, and how are you going to grieve? I still haven't decided. <laughs> this is Brexit, right? Yes. <laughs> I could recommend heavy drinking. Oh, I don't know. I don't I don't even know if I'll be in the mood for that. I'll just probably hide somewhere. Someone was telling me to light a candle. That seems to be a thing. Light a candle and yeah. drink through. Yeah. Also in London, we have Amity Duku, a consultant at the Nels Group. Amity, your highlight of the week, please. Well, I've been doing um, a bit of planning, um, f- uh, supporting university with their strategy this week, and I've, I've got to do lots of uh, dystopian future thinking, which has been quite exciting, thinking about all the disastrous things that may or may not happen over the next uh, 10 to 20 years. Well, give us one. Um, one of the things we're thinking is that, that we might end up with two or three internets if um, tensions between Ooh. sort of the USA and China really um, get get to a, a head in the sort of new Cold War. And what would that mean for international collaboration? And in the deepest, darkest southwest of England, it's friend to you and why, that's Axis and Generation. It's Wonky's David Kernahan, aka DK. DK, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, my highlight of the week would have to be uh, what I like to describe as Wonk Christmas, uh, which is the release of the uh, end of cycle UCAS data by provider. I spent absolutely ages yesterday plowing through all that. And if you want to see what I came up with, there's a couple of articles on the site. And more on that later in the show. So to start us off this week, the Office of Students has released its analysis of universities' access and participation plans. After months of wrangling over the plans and too many fallings out between universities and OFS over the issue to name, OFS has finally published its analysis of the progress so far and found that providers are basically on track to meet four out of five of the aims that were set uh, and the access gap for most of the selective universities is set to halve in the next five years. The progress has been praised, uh, though some sections of the press reported it this week as a squeeze on middle-class applicants. Amate, talk us through this one. Yes, that's right. So um, the Office of Students, they've, they've released their analysis. Um, these were the, um, of the plans that were assessed before the 31st of October. Um, I think, broadly speaking... Um, it seems as, as, as if the OFS is happy, um, where things are, um, and, and sort of helpful, um, uh, encouragement from the, from the minister as well, um, in, in sort of 
fully backing the OFS's actions, as you'd expect. Um, of those key performance uh, measures, there's one that will be responded to um, after the um, AUGA um, is, is responded to. Um, but we've we've got uh, things around the gap in participation um, at high-tariff universities um, between the most um, represented groups and the least represented groups. Um, this is expected to come down to a ratio of, of 1 to 1 by 2038. Um, we've got stuff about non-continuation, um, the gap in degree outcomes between white students and black students. Again, the aim of eliminating that by 2038. Uh, eliminating um, factors that uh, universities are responsible at the very least. And and then we've got that gap in degree outcomes between um, first and two ones, between disabled students and non-disabled students, also with the aim of that being um, eliminated. Um, as as you mentioned, Mark, um, the press unfortunately has focused a bit more on this um, sort of squeeze of middle-class students from selective universities um, and unsurprisingly um, from private schools. Now, to some extent, this could be seen as a sort of validation of the OFS's approach. Um, if the target is to level the playing field between those from affluent backgrounds and from dis disadvantaged backgrounds, then the amount of money you sort of put towards or, or are able to pay for your pri primary and secondary education shouldn't determine where you go to university. I think the, the final two points I'd make on this is that um, I think now there's going to have to be a lot more focus on how these targets are going to be met. OFS is more interested in outcomes than the process of, of how you get there. But I think actually on widening access, they want to see evidence that progress is being made. So I think the sector needs to think about what resources need to go into that. And then the, the, the final point actually is that one of the things I think which might be missing, and it may be not in their um, remit to do so, to look at is actually the sector in 2030, when lots of these targets are going to be met, 2040, is going to look very different. To, to now. Uh, and just to give one example, the degree may not exist in its current form. What, what does it mean for lifelong learning? What does uh, widening access mean for lifelong learning? So lots and lots of interesting things that I think will need to be looked at in terms of that over the next few years. And do you think that some of the targets are realistic? So part of, part of, um, the, one of the, some of the feedback I've heard from the sector is that, okay, they've signed on to, to deliver a lot of these improvements. And you mentioned some, like, for example, the black attainment gap, but they don't believe a lot of universities don't believe they're actually going to meet them. Do you think that uh, the AMP plans are are achievable? Do you think that this is the right way of getting universities to, I guess, reconfigure the way it, it accepts students and 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 take students through? And uh, I guess the question to all of you is: is kind of what extent is this, you know, a problem or a set of problems further down the pipeline to, to universities, and how much of it is in, in universities' gift? I, I think. I mean, that's a very good point. When um before joining NAUS when I was working at NUS and we were doing lots of work around the BME attainment gap, one of the common questions that I would be asked is, um, yes, they might set these ambitious targets, but are they are they actually going to meet them? And, and what levers do OFS have to actually get institutions to meet them? I think it's certainly a starting point. The one thing I would say is that institutions shouldn't underestimate and the sector shouldn't underestimate the scale of the challenge. One of the biggest things that's going to influence um, the BME attainment gap is um, staff um, and the diversity of, of, of staff. And that requires a, a much longer lead time than, than actually might be seen from some, some of these dates. So that, that huge changes are going to need to be made to admissions, to, to the whole student life cycle. And un unless we see evidence of that change happening, then actually uh, it's unlikely that these targets will be met. Uh, and Rachel, I'm, I'm really interested in the way the press cover uh, this issue. I mean, it's, it's um, it always sets hairs running, particularly in the, the right, right wing press. And we saw, I think, a particular um, strand of criticism this week. Um, I mean, your paper covered um, the private schools' criticism um, of getting uh, of a push to get more students in, into university. You know, why do you think there is this mismatch between kind of 
how the media report this issue and, and I guess what's actually happening um, in the education system. Yeah, I think that's interesting as well. And I guess it kind of plays into this sort of wider problem with the whole university system and the university funding system that it's it's so complicated um, and has actually changed so much that a lot of people don't really understand that. Because it strikes me that the backlash um, around private schools does sort of reflect a bit of a misunderstanding of how the, the system works at the moment. So a place for a student from a poorer background doesn't automatically take away from the allowance for private schools. Um, and particularly the most selective universities have expanded so rapidly. I mean, I know places like Bristol, for instance, have doubled since the number numbers cap was lifted I mean the only institutions I suppose that this that could maybe apply to would be Oxford and Cambridge since they're the, the two that are kind of still keep quite quite contra- tight controls on numbers um, and loads of universities have very ambitious plans to grow further I know that's a that's a big discussion at Durham at the moment at Bristol as well um, I mean obviously there are kind of problems with unchecked expansion, particularly the implications for, for kind of student experience and mental health. But that's sort of, if we take that as a separate issue for now, um, it does seem like the kind of, I guess, hysteria around places for, for private, private uh, people from private schools does seem a bit misplaced. Um, but it's also something that's been going on for a really long time. I mean, it, you know, even when con- contextualised admissions started like decades ago, um, there was there was a lot of discussion around this. Um, I received an angry email in response to the latest um, kind of news about the access and participation plans from someone who accused Bristol University of social engineering because they've said that all state school students who reach a certain benchmark will be admitted. So, I mean, it's also funny because not only is that not the case, um, you know, as, as I described earlier, but also I feel like there's a certain irony in the fact that, you know, the, the critics of, of these of these kind of widening access initiatives can't see that their assumption that going to a private school means kind of paying to win is in itself a sort of form of social engineering. So, I don't know, I personally feel like we're kind of dancing around the more relevant debate which is around whether private schools should be abolished in the first place but since that's unlikely to happen anytime soon um you know this this seems like the next best option Mm. and it it was um it was bristol university uh who was the first Mm -hmm. i believe university to stand up and say we're going to do contextual admissions yeah Um, i think that was like in the early noughties it it? was in the yeah late 90s early noughties and Mm. and eric thomas the vc came under huge criticism from his own uh, from his own sector colleagues um not least the the right the right wing press um and it feels often like the debate hasn't actually moved on uh tremendously tremendously since then yeah Um, although i I suppose I feel like contextualised admissions is more normalised now than it is them. You know, all universities are are doing it, but it's sort of every time a new frontier is reached, the same discussion plays out again. Mm. DK, what what surprised you about the A&P plans? Well, um, one thing that did stand out for me, uh, we talk about the A&P plans of each individual institution as if they're entirely institutionally set, but we know from the publication that of the 171 plans that they assessed by the 31st of October, the OFS applied mitigations to 164. Uh, 90 have advanced monitoring uh, requirements as well. Uh, the story in the background is a lot of institutions submitted their plans and has saw them initially knocked back by the regulator who said, no, we'd like you to be more ambitious. So large parts of these plans are in fact providers writing exactly what the Office of Students are uh, uh, wants to see in the plans. Uh, uh, one striking thing about the way they've compiled them to targets, they've made a lot of assumptions in uh, 
looking at how close the plans get them to the targets. A couple of them are quite strange assumptions, like that assume that the sector is not actually going to grow in any way, uh, which we we know based on uh, past performance is very, very unlikely. We've seen steady growth in the sector for a number of years now. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. I'm Gabby Binney, Policy and Research Manager at the Association of Graduate Careers Advisory Services, or AGCAS, and this week I've been blogging for Wonky about a piece of research that we've done in collaboration with UKI, UKISA and Coventry University. The announcement last year about the new graduate route was really welcome and everyone who worked hard campaigning to make it happen should be really thrilled. But we know that a significant number of international students don't stay in the UK after graduation and even for those that do, they'll still face real barriers to gaining graduate level work experience in the UK. So what can we do to support their employability? The piece of research that we've done showcases some of the best practice happening in the sector already and also highlights some of the things that universities, the sector and government could be doing better. One of the most interesting things that we found in the research was that only 28% of career services actually feel able to meet current demand from international students, but only over 70% expect demand to increase with the new graduate route. So I make the case for universities across the sector to work collaboratively and better pool their resources to support international students and graduates um, and their employability. There's a real risk that if the new graduate route um, will actually decrease international student satisfaction. By working together, we can improve international student outcomes wherever they go and increase the attractiveness of the whole UK HE sector. The end of end of cycle season is here. UCAS has released the final tranche of data about the most recent application cycle, as well as the final chapters of its report and analysis, including the bi-institutional uh, data that we got this morning. DK, please take us on a journey down data lane. So uh, this is a standard thing, happens January every year, although we, we are, I would say, politely interested in the rest of the end of cycle stuff. The big moment comes when you get to see um, information about the recruitment performance of individual institutions. That's normally what the headline's about. That is normally what uh, uh, dominates the day of HE coverage. However, this year has been uh, different in that they also released a forecast of um, offer-making behaviour around unconditional offers in the 2020 cycle, which is not something they would usually do at this point. Um, remember, we're only 15 days after the end of the uh, after the main uh, deadline. Apologies um, for um, UCAS on uh, January the 15th. And they've not got much information about offer-making behaviour in the 2020 cycle to really go on at this point. So it's quite a surprising thing to make that kind of a, um, a prediction. I actually ended up uh, speaking directly to the uh, the uh, the press office about this and said, OK, how have you come up about this? Because in the publication, in the report, it's in Chapter 9, they show a graph of unconditional offer making in 2018 and 2019 and we can see it substantially rising at least in terms of um the conditional unconditional offers that everybody talks about so what they told me is uh providers have already made statements about future offer making plans and i believe there is a plan to publish a few of these um the early offer making in the system for 2020 cycle that's the massive kind of uh 15 days of evidence and the 
trend from the report back in December that students are less likely to focus on this. And that strikes me as quite shaky ground to make a, um, a prediction on. And it's surprising to me that they would lead with that prediction rather than all of the interesting nuggets that are in the end of cycle. Give us a, a sense of the um, the picture then last year. So who are the who are the big winners and losers? So looking at last year, what I picked up is there's a strong performance in post-92 institutions. If you split things and look at them by groups, you can see a big growth um, from uh, the, the University Alliance and a big growth from... Uh, million plus. Um, I mean, both of the build on slight growth last year is well after a long period of decline. The Russell Group seems to be plateauing. The, um, as you know, there's been a lot of conversation about huge growth in the Russell Group since 2012. That primarily happened in the early years of uh, the decade and is now very much evening out. The big winners in terms of institutions, Leeds Trinity University's intake grew 66% over last year. Uh, Coventry University grew 20%, uh, and you have to go down to King's College London at uh, 15% to find a Russell Group institution that is substantially growing. Um, there's a slight anomaly at the University of Bedfordshire, who managed to grow um, 103%. Uh, which is a bit... Um, I mean, we can uh, talk about that later. Uh, in terms of contraction... In intake, the people who are shrinking over last year are Solent, uh, De Montfort. I wonder why that is. Uh, the University of Leeds, the University of Plymouth, and the University of Sh uh, Sheffield. And I, I'm going to tell you, every year we see kind of these, these big swings up and down. Um, and then every cycle, particularly since the numbers cap was lifted, there's been quite a lot of volatility. I would think it's fair to say, um, in the, in the sector. How do you think universities, kind of respond to that i mean not all of this is in their gift of course but some of these numbers of big big periods of growth and, and really big and sustained periods of contraction look just like a nightmare to manage um it, it, it absolutely is um, and particularly when funding is so intricately uh, linked to the number of students you can get in um uh, I think on the one hand, universities need to make sure that they are planning effectively ahead, um, that they are looking at the locations that they're in and they're being realistic about the plans for growth. And that means in terms of not um, baking in figures that are not going to come, looking at the um, competition and thinking realistically, what is our share of, of, of the students who are in that area or who, who typically come to our university and being honest with internally about what, what that means. And I think as the sector changes, as the, um, you know, in the sort of post-Brexit uh, Britain, as the uh, needs, uh, as, as the sort of requirements of the higher education sector also change, as we might start to see an uptick um, in in uh, the number of students coming to universities. Universities need to be able to expand, contract, um, and, and to, to be ready to, to, to deal with different levels of students coming in and, and see that as part of, of, of a normal kind of function of a university. The one thing I would say 
is that particularly when it comes to, well, actually on both sides, whether it's growth or shrinking, um, student experience needs to be a real focus of that. Because on the one hand, if you have an, a situation where you've got a huge influx of students and it's kind of you sort of a fingers crossed approach and yes, we got what we wanted, but actually if you don't have um, the housing facilities for them, if you don't have the support services for them, they are going to have a really, really bad experience. But on the other side, if you've got a huge campus and um, you maybe even strategically make a decision that you're going to take a, a lower share of the student population um that you can end up with a sort of ghost town effect of, of your institution so the universities need to be planning ahead they need to make sure that the students i think are, are at the center of that thinking and you know what does it mean this year if we take an ex students what does that mean for the current student cohort and how can we make sure that they have the best experience at a time when um these numbers might be a bit volatile mm. and, and rachel do you think this gives us a kind of uh, analysis of the market and how it's working or is it even is it too soon to say after um a few years post post number cap removal yeah um what it's very interesting on this rise of the post 92s and the kind of comparative fall of the russell group and i'd be really curious to hear some some analysis on what's driving that which i haven't come across yet i mean is it about kind of who's spending more on marketing um you know has the russell group got complacent are they a bit worried about maybe you know kind of the headlines around some of the sort of student mental health problems and, and, and suicides that have been kind of um sort of connected with 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 rising numbers and and the lack of support um or is it more that as expansion continues um more students from comparatively disadvantaged backgrounds are going to be going to university and they make slightly different choices you know they might be more likely to go to the local post 92 so i don't i mean i don't really i don't know what the analysis is but i'd be very curious to hear more about it um i guess the other thing just to go back to the unconditional conditional offers i mean i think david was right to point out this strange disconnect between the reality of their increasing and you know, kind of UCAS leading with this idea that actually it, it, it doesn't, it's fine because that they won't be around in the future. Um, you know, that they just, it's kind of shocking that they even exist in the beginning because they're just so unethical and manipulative. And I'm really surprised that more universities didn't sort of read the tea leaves and recognise that binning them would make for really good PR. For instance, um, in the independent piece, you know, Falmouth gets, gets a mention that they've already decided to, to get rid of them. Um, and, you know, on top of that, I guess, the next sort of step after that is kind of more scrutiny of the other ways in which universities are trying to court applicants. Um, you know, I'm always hearing about things like free gym passes, free laptops and so on. And if you think about what the, the objective of those is, it's to try and force the hand of someone who might be sort of quite young and inexperienced at making decisions into, into doing something that the university wants. I, I do think at, the, at its worst end, that's, that's often the case. But I mean, on terms of, in terms of bad PR, in a competitive market, you can sort of understand the decision to say, well, we can take a PR hit because actually if we don't get student numbers, then we're, we're not going to survive. I mean, it's kind of a running joke we have, uh, we've had at Wonky since the, uh, since, since numbers cap, you know, it's pretty much every, everything the sector has tried. Um, uh, there's been a backlash against, you know, oh yes, we want a competitive market. Hold on, but not like that. Mm. Um, and the government is putting pressure on universities via the system it's, it's handed them. This is a topic we've talked on the, about on the show time and time and again. And I don't, it doesn't seem like there's an, there's an easy answer. DK, I want to come back to some of the, the stories under the data. And Rachel pointed out, you know, this question, do we know why some of these um, large expansions and large contractions are happening? I mean, you mentioned one university with over 100% expansion, but obviously from a low base. So what's going on there? Uh, we should talk, that was the University of Bedfordshire, which was a bit of a surprise. What's happened is that they have um, uh, massively expanded in two subject areas, an expansion of business and social studies courses. 
It, I don't know for sure exactly what the story is there, but that looks to me like they've taken on a load more franchising arrangements where they have a course, but somebody else teaches it for them. Particularly business courses are uh, popular in such arrangements. So I think for some of the swings, we might be seeing something like that. In terms of overall university strategy, um, in conversations with strategic planners that I've had, I get the sense that the dash for growth in the early years of the decade is, in most cases, largely over. People are, n- are no longer assuming that the the uh, the market will mean that they can grow quickly. So a lot of planners are starting from the idea of what size would they like the university to be? What's their resource base? What academics do they have? What accommodation do they have to support um, a credible and uh, worthwhile student experience without spending significant extra uh, money on new infrastructure. So especially in the Russell group, I think you're seeing people who are thinking, okay, we're round about the right size at the moment. We need to look more at the mix of students that we're recruiting and less at that overall growth. Hello, it's Jim from the team. Uh, The Secret Life of Students 2020. It's our student experience conference where we'll be doing student experience differently. 19th of March, London, Mermaid Centre, uh, you've got to be there. Um, it's all about doing the student experience differently. We're going to bring together research and intel and review everything we learned about students in 2019 and ask what that means for government and regulators and universities and their students' unions. It's about getting beyond the stale debates and case studies and rethinking the student experience, uh, bringing together experts and sector leaders and managers as well as student leaders and student union managers to forge a new agenda for students. What does that mean? Well, uh, we'll look at what the new government and the associated regulatory agenda mean for students. We'll take a look at what major changes to funding, the TEF and the National Student Survey could mean for universities and their student unions. Uh, If Generation Z is a generation that treasures fairness, we'll think about how we can respond to strengthen students' rights, how teaching and learning could be changing to adapt to 2020's busy students and we'll have a think about what student influence and partnership mean in a world of big data. Uh, we'll also ask how we might get beyond the reductive endless circular debates on free speech and build a culture of democratic engagement on campus. We'll find out what happens when you listen to students on their own terms and we'll explore what safety means to students and what safeguarding really means. Uh, it's going to be great, an essential event for anyone working on policy and delivery for students. To find out more, you want wonky.com forward slash events, where you'll find details of speakers. The agenda will emerge in the next uh, couple of weeks and details of how to get your ticket. So the Migration Advisory Committee published an influential report on immigration this week. Wonky's editor, Debbie Vitti is on hand to talk us through what it said. We've been hearing a lot about the new points-based immigration system that will be brought in after Brexit. But what could that mean in practice? Universities have a pretty sizable stake in future immigration arrangements, not only for international student recruitment, but also to be able to recruit from a global talent pool for academic and specialist staff. We've had two developments on the issue of future arrangements for migrant workers this week, showing that, as ever, different bits of government don't spend very much time talking to each other. First, the government announced a new global talent route that would replace the current tier one route for highly skilled people planning to come to the UK to look for work. The interesting bit of this for higher education was that under the global talent route, researchers with prestigious international funding grants could be fast-tracked through the visa system. Not only that, once they're here, there would be a relaxation of current rules that make it hard for them to change jobs or secure residence in the UK. So that was one big story. Then, later in the week, 
the Independent Migration Advisory Committee, or MAC to its friends, produced the recommendations on the future of Tier 1 highly skilled and the employer-sponsored Tier 2 immigration routes. For the uninitiated, the MAC isn't an arm of government or a parliamentary committee. It's a small committee of experts in migration that can conduct inquiries and assess the data and evidence to make policy recommendations. And it's really quite a phenomenon. The MAC's view of Tier 1 was that it should be converted to a points-based system in which potential migrants accrue points based on things like their age, their language skills and other specialist skills they might have, um, all adding up to an assessment of their potential to succeed and make a contribution in the UK. If you get a certain number of points, you get in. The caveat the committee noted was that as things stand, we don't actually know very much about which qualities enable someone to make a contribution. So that's definitely something to think about before we implement a new system. On tier two, the key issue up for discussion uh, was the minimum salary threshold for uh, the jobs that qualify for being available to international migrant workers. That threshold currently stands at 30k. Many employers, including HE employers, have said that's too high. Universities UK had recommended a threshold of 21k. The committee has recommended that the threshold not be imposed at an arbitrary level, but that it be set at the 25th percentile of the full-time earning distribution of all the jobs or occupations eligible in the Tier 2 route, which is obviously quite a mouthful, but it's the idea is that it's data-driven. They've calculated it for 2019 earnings data, and they've arrived at a figure of around 25,600. Uh, the idea is that the, the figure would change in light of new data on earnings year on year. Their reasoning for not reducing the threshold further, or indeed removing it altogether, which could resonate in some parts of HE, is that they don't want to create a situation where employers can use migrant labour, which could potentially be cheaper than homegrown labour, to keep wages low. The occupations in the Tier 2 route tend to be more public sector and professional occupations, and the committee sees that route as being aligned with the aspiration to create a high-skilled, high-wage economy. There's no requirement for government to accept the committee's recommendations. They are only advisory, but their view does carry a lot of weight. We're expecting an immigration white paper in the early spring, so no, no doubt there'll be plenty more in this debate in the coming months. Welcome to Yes, But How Does It Extrapolate? If this podcast segment had a commemorative 50p piece, the inscription would absolutely use the Oxford comma. In 2019, the UK sector's acceptance rate, which is the number of acceptances divided by the number of applications, kind of a measure of how difficult it is to get a place you apply for, was 76.62%. By what year would you expect it to reach 100%? Oh no. Um, I really I haven't got much of a frame of reference for, for this. Um, never? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a, a similar one um, to that, I would say, it, it could never reach 100%. Um. And the answer is, never. In fact, over 100 years, which is about as far as I can extrapolate, the rate will fall to around 72%, suggesting that the sector will become slightly more selective over the next century. Data is from HESA, and where the data doesn't exist, I've extrapolated it. And finally, the government has confirmed a major review of research bureaucracy including the scrapping of the Pathways Impact Statement, the uh, impact measure made in grant applications, um, and this has set academic and research Twitter on fire the last few days. Rachel, talk us through it. Yeah, so there's this new new major review of research bureaucracy and methods, um, and that's looking to tackle the 
unnecessary paperwork, the arduous funding applications and research pr- uh, processes in order to help researchers kind of focus on actually doing proper work. Um, so it was it was widely reported last week um, after a leaked email came to light and has now been confirmed. Um, and there's been sort of a little bit of kind of controversy over it because on the one hand, I mean, there's a lot of value in the in the impact agenda, um, but, uh, which is kind of a way of getting researchers to, to focus on making sure that their research has real world implications. But there's always been an element of of controversy over just the, the level of work and whether actually the statements that are being submitted, you know, how, how meaningful are they? You know, are they incentivizing kind of busy work that doesn't really need to be done? Um, so I think sort of leaving aside for a minute kind of the value of the impact agenda, I think more broadly, any move to lessen bureaucracy for researchers is really important um you know so we've seen through things like the university um, and college union pay and pension strikes just how strong feelings are on campus around academic workload and the connection between anxiety and stress and specifically in relation to researchers this was a point that was made by welcome's report on changing research culture which came out a couple of weeks ago and part of that involved highlighting the amount of time that researchers have to spend on funding applications and the toll that takes on on their mental health um in response to that we published a piece from Anton Muscatelli who's the vice chancellor of Glasgow in which he urged universities to respond with practical solutions so kind of looking to reduce bureaucracy wherever possible so I feel like this initiative kind of taps into that broader conversation um you know, just as an example that he gave um he said that Glasgow is trying to hire more administrative staff and also introduce digital shortcuts in order to, to reduce the bureaucratic burden. Um, but I think it's becoming increasingly clear that all the different actors in research culture, you know, whether, you know, that's the, the example of the universities um, and Welcome was also highlighting um the responsibility of funders and here we've got the government trying to do something all have a responsibility to come together to improve the working environment and, and to minimize stress. Um separately, I guess another interesting point is how this is kind of an intriguing decision to run in parallel with what's often seen by researchers as a broader government drive aimed at increasing how much research is done with strategic economic priorities. Um, We ran a piece by um, journalist Anna Fazakali, who spoke to a number of scientists who were very worried about what Brexit would mean for the EU's valuable Blue Skies funding. Um, She had some stats that included um, one that research council funding, which supports research projects in line with government policy goals, increased by 46 percent between 2012 and 2016. And conversely, the kind of QR funding from Research England, which is which is more more used for blue skies work, um, only increased by one percent. So. Yeah, so it's, it's 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 interesting because one academic said that this lack of blue skies funding makes researchers even more dependent on the treadmill of, of grant applications. Um, but it's also interesting as another point made by the academics was how they're they're sort of actually fed up of unnecessary distinctions being made between blue skies and applied research since they have a kind of symbiotic relationship. So uh, that kind of reflected the point that um I, you know I read James Wilson's piece that he wrote for Wonky about this move kind of being indicative of the fact of the idea that impact has matured and is now kind of baked into the ref process and there don't need to be these sort of distinctions um, that, 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 that a lot of scientists think are quite arbitrary. Amateur, do, do you think this spells the end of the impact agenda? Uh, absolutely not. And, and to some extent, it, I think it is a, is a, is a bit of a sort of distraction. As we've heard, it is likely um, that... Um, again in this sort of post-Brexit landscape particularly with this government which is you know really itching to show that you know the UK is still a global power I think it will be it won't be very long before they realize that research and, and, and the capabilities that we have around that are could be a key part of that 
The question is, is the sector going to define what good impact looks like or is that going to be defined um, by government? Um, and I think that's where the, 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 the debate is going to go. And I, I think there's a broader question, which is probably more on the sort of comm slash PR side of things, is how do we make sure that universities, particularly those um, in the regions outside London, are able to demonstrate to their local communities the positive impact that um, that their research and their work is doing how can they make sure they're bringing communities into institutions to be part of that research um, whether that's through public lectures or actually having them being involved in, in some some of that work um, th- I suppose there is a broader th- trend which is also to be welcomed and it's encouraging to see that um, any attempt really to streamline processes and to, to, to really um, find new solutions to bureaucracy is, is welcome. And I think that's certainly a good thing. But I think, if anything, that sort of um, march towards making sure that research has um, clear positive impact, whether that's in the short term or the long term, that's not going anywhere. I know that UKRI obviously makes its own decisions about uh, things like grant applications. Um, but it's been said by James Wills and others that um, it, it's an early sign that they're willing to kind of, I guess, acquiesce to the Dominic Cummings agenda. Um, and although there is, you know, a sort of certain separation of powers here, um, Dominic Cummings' ideas about research and innovation and, and how it should be funded and how it should be delivered um, are becoming incredibly influential. I think we should start by saying Dominic Cummings is not the messiah. He's a very naughty boy. He's um, an old blogger. He said all kinds of stuff. Probably some of it he still believes. Probably some of it he doesn't. And probably some of it he's uh, blatantly regurgitated from somebody else. Um, in terms of uh, the Haldane risk that you are um, hinting at in terms of direct government influence over what subjects of research and are researched and how... We've always had government influence at the top level. I mean, uh, uh, which research programs are going to be launched? Uh, which are the, is it 10 or 12 grand challenges that we need to look at? Um, and there's going to be research funding for that. Um, in terms of, uh, the erosion of Haldane, we have the uh, the UK ARPA idea, the idea of like a special projects uh, decision that are going to fund long term uh, kind of risky projects, which I think is a really good idea. I mean, the, that's obviously got questions that uh, need to be asked about the role of uh, uh, peer review and academic oversight of the decisions of those uh, 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 projects. And I imagine there will be an announcement that will uh, detail that. But I want to come back to the idea of the pathways to impact statements. And I want to actually defend them because I think they were a really, really uh, sensible idea. It's just a little question, which is, okay, we'd like to give you all of this money to do your research. What's it actually going to do in real terms? How's it actually going to affect regular people? How's it going to affect the field? And that is to my mind, a reasonable question that you would ask if you're deciding uh, what kind of research that uh, you're going to fund out of a limited uh, budget. Um, And I'm not really sure that uh, losing the, the, the Pathways to Impact statement is anything other than a signal to researchers from the government that they are serious about reducing burden. Uh, it's not the most burden thing. It's not the most burdensome thing that uh, researchers are 
have to do if they're applying for project uh, funding. That is nearly always the budget or getting the appropriate sign-off from different bits of their institution. Um, and the other big impact on the workload of researchers is the uh, competitive nature of research. I mean, we've seen a couple of reports recently that have uh, pointed to the impact of uh, uh, competition being seen as the central point of research for, rather than the old-fashioned ideas of um, a community of scholars and of um, a collaborative approaches. And the large number of hoops academics have to jump through for the uh, REF is a question that needs to be answered and needs to be thought about. I mean, some of those hoops are sensible. Uh, the majority of research, if not all research, that is funded by the taxpayer should be free to read by the taxpayer uh, but there's a lot of stuff in there about um, making internal judgments about the quality of the research and pretending that the journal impact factor is actually a thing which is just adding work to academics that is not contributing uh, towards research quality at all it's just as uh, Rachel pointed out it's just busy work so that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Rachel, Amate, DK and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen. Until next week, stay wonky. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.